right. Um, this week, back home, we're reading Parshat Shlach. We're a week behind Spol and Chutzlarz. But um, Parshat Shlach, of course, is famous because it is the story of the quote-unquote Meraglim. I say quote-unquote Meraglim because they're never actually called that. Uh, and therein lies part of what we're going to deal with. Um, but the main problem I want to look at is, um, is the nature of the mission as portrayed in this week's parasha, as opposed to the way that it's portrayed in the beginning of Sefer Dvarim here in Source 2. Uh, because we're all familiar with the opening story here, although perhaps not as carefully as, as we ought to. So Hashem tells Moshe, and this seems to be divinely driven, meaning not a response to anything, but Hashem says to Moshe, send people via Turu at Eretz Canaan. Let them scout or visit Eretz Canaan, and then we find something else out. You're going to send one person from each of his father's tribes, meaning you're going to send representatives of each tribe. Kol nasi vahem, and they're machers. They're important people, lifted up people. All right? Moshe is exactly what Hashem told him, which is they are all important people. They are heads of B'nai Israel that he sends. And then we get the list of their names. <coughs> Famously, none of these are names that we recognize, meaning they're not Nisim that we know from earlier. They are other tribal heads, but not the chieftains. Uh, we hear for the first time the name Hoshea. I'll comment on that in a minute. And we, of course, hear the name Kalev, but Kalev is also not somebody we've heard of till now, but later on he'll become famous in the aftermath of this story, and again later on in, uh, in Sefer Yoshua. Um, and then we, at the end of this read, we find out that Now, just parenthetically, because the question is, what does that mean? Does that mean that his name was Hoshea the whole time? And at this point, Moshe said, you know what? I'm going to change your name to Yoshua, and I'm following the Midrash that Rashi quotes, which is that the other guys I'm sending are problematic, they're conspirational, they're going to create problems, and I'm going to add a yod to your name, so that instead of Hoshea, you'll be Yehoshua, Ya Meraglim. God should save you from being part of the conspiracy of the Meraglim. That, of course, is very difficult for two reasons. Reason number one is that if Moshe knew that these guys were going to cause problems, why send them? And if he somehow has to send them, then why receive them and allow them to come and give the report? which, of course, would cause the problems. The second thing is that we met Yoshua already all the way back, back in Parsha Peshalach when he led the battle against Amalek, and then later on when he accompanied Moshe up to the mountain. Yoshua uh, appeared also in last week's parasha as Moshe's aide who says, lock up El Dadu Medad. Yoshua is all over there, and he's all over as Yoshua. So... Um, it, it's hard to, hard to fathom that he would be called that. And then now Moshe changed his name from Moshe to Yoshua. So why is he called Yoshua earlier? The truth is that second question is not such a bad question. Because I can easily say that when Moshe finally wrote the Torah down at the end of his life, he referred to him as Yoshua. But if that's the case, then why mention here by Moshe, Yoshua? So the Rashbam says what seems to be pshat 
which is that when somebody is elevated and taken into a court, uh, they are given a new name. The two examples that he gives are uh, Daniel, who gets the name Belshazzar, and by the way, Hanan and Mishal Azari also get the names Meshach, Shadrach, Avednego, and if you know any gospel music, you know those names. And of course, Yosef, who is Yosef, becomes Tzafnat Paneach. Uh, and the idea is that when you enter a court, you get a new name. By the way, Moshe Rabbeinu himself is a good example of that. Moshe was not his name, but he got called, God called Moshe when he was brought into the palace. So he says that's what happened since Hosea was elevated to the position of prime disciple of Moshe, and he was no yamish mitocha oel. He always stayed in the oel. He become, became an acolyte of Moshe, very similar to Shmuel and Eli's kind of relationship. Uh, therefore, he was given a new name, and Moshe gave him the name, name close to his name, but not the same. Instead of Hosea, he calls him Yehoshua. Uh, now, then you have to ask the question, so how come we don't hear about that earlier? And the answer is from the very beginning of when we meet him, he's already Yehoshua. So then why mention it here? And the answer is quite straightforward. This is the only place in all of Tanakh where Yehoshua operates not as a leader of Bnei Israel or as the acolyte of Moshe, but rather as a representative of Shevet Ephraim. So if you go into the genealogical records and look for somebody in the family of Nun, whose name is Yehoshua, you won't find him. And so here, as a member of Shevet Ephraim, he's identified by his birth name, Hosea bin Nun. And so you so that you'll know this is the same guy we're talking about. Therefore, it says that Moshe called him Yehoshua, meaning he had called him, he'd already given that name Yehoshua earlier. Right, that's a side point. But the bigger point of this is, that Moshe is sending machers, and he's sending 12 of them, and one from each tribe. Now, this is HaKadosh Baruch Hu's intent. That's what he, he told them to do. And what do they do? And where do they go? First of all, what does he ask them to do? He asked them to find out about what kind of land it is, what kind of cities they have, but more is, is this a place with trees? What kind of, is it a fat land? Is it a good land? I right, keep that in mind because we're going to analyze that all of that all of that information together. They return from scouting the land, and by the way, when they go, they they um, they they go and scout the land, and they go all the way to Rehov, Rehov, which is on the way to Hamat, is all the way up in Syria, which means they go from Kadesh Barnea, which is, shall we say, a little bit below the current border between Israel and Egypt, about halfway between Elat and Azah about 10 kilometers south of there, maybe, that's where we think Kadesh Barnea is, they go all the way through the Negev, they go all the way to the north, uh, to Rehov, which is on the way to Hamat. And not only that, but they, they now more details, one of them goes to Hebron, the singular. It could be the whole group, it could be one singular, famously Kalev, goes to Hebron, we hear a description of Hebron, and we hear about the giants that live in Hebron, the huge people Hebron will play a story a role later in the story. And then they come to Nachal Ashkol and they uh, and they cut a cluster of grapes and they bring them back along with figs and pomegranates. We'll talk about why they brought those specifically. All right. And then they should know it's called Nachal Ashkol because of the Ashkol, the cluster of grapes that they brought. And they return from Turaharitz and they come to Moshe and Aharon and they're about to give the report. And of course, from there, things go south. I got to deal with the report. Uh, the part that went south, but the first part is, we've come to the land, it is zavat, chalav, udvash, and here's the fruit to prove it. 
That's the first part of the report. The rest of it is we saw the giants and Amalek and the Philema, da, 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 da. Okay, and we're all familiar with that. We've dealt with that in another shiur. But I want to look at what their mission and what their, uh, the, the, the contours of the mission, who was sent, why they were sent, and what should have happened in this mission and what went south. So it seems from a simple read of this that this mission is not a spy mission. Reason number one, the word spy is not here. Like there's a different word used, which is Latour, which is again to scout, to visit. Second of all, who sent? 12 machers, one from each tribe. And which tribe does not have a representative sent? What's the one shevet that doesn't have a representative here? You all know it. The answer is Levi. Levi. Why doesn't Shavit Levi have a, have a representative here? So the, the simplest, and, and by the way, and where do they go to? They go every corner of the land from the bottom of the top. It takes them 40 days to travel, to traverse the land. And what, what, what is this mission? So it seems fairly clear what this mission is. This mission is not a spy mission. They're not going uh, incognito. They're walking through the land. Machers walking through the land. At the end, traipsing out with big things of fruit, carrying them on their, on their shoulders, the sticks, because they're there to scout out the tribal lands they're going to get. And so Levi doesn't have a representative because Levi's not getting land. It makes a lot of sense. And either all 12 of them go throughout the land and see the entire land so that when later they're told which part they're going to get, they can tell their people what it looks like. Or else, based on Breshit Memtet, perhaps, they already know what part of the land they're going to be getting, and they go together as a group to, to those places. But when they get to Eretz Zvulun, the Zvulun guy takes a look and says, oh, there you go, and get to Dan's territory, Nachbib and Bafsi takes a look, etc. Either that, or third possibility is that they already know where they're going, and they split up, which would be then explain, then, then explain the odd grammar here of and it explained why one individual went to Hebron, meaning the whole group all made it all the way to Rehov, but they all went to different places. And uh, we assume that Naphtali went to Rehov, maybe, and maybe Asher. And in the meantime, the Kalev of Yehuda goes to Hebron, uh, etc., because they're going to see, we already know what land it is. We're going to go as a group, and then we're going to split up and each go to our own place. We'll come back and we'll gather our shavit together. We'll tell them, this is a great land. It's beautiful. We can plant this kind of stuff and that kind of stuff. We got hills. We got valleys. We got the sea. We don't have the sea. We have a river. Don't have a river, whatever. Very nice. It makes a lot of sense. We also understand why HaKadosh Baruch Hu would have sent them, would have directed them to send. It wasn't a response to the people saying, we don't know, we need a military advantage. We don't need, we're going to walk in brazenly because HaKadosh Baruch Hu already split the sea. We already know that Namogu everybody in Canaan is afraid of us. We're going to walk in and we're going to identify where we're coming and we'll leave a note. We'll be back in a few weeks and we'll come back with everybody. Right? Just like if you read in, in Shoftim Perak Yudchet, what Shevet Dan does, they send five guys up, they see the place they're going to conquer, then they come back with 600 men and they wipe it out. This should all work. What happens is sending machers is a really bad idea. Machers 
are very good for certain things, photo ops, maybe negotiating with high level people. They're not good for a mission like this. And we don't know why they responded the way they did, whether they were suddenly seized with fear or whether they realized as some more Hasidic uh, approaches to this are that their life in Israel would not be as meaningful once they're already set in the land, maybe they found more meaning in the desert, whatever the, the, the approach might be, they decided to highlight things that they weren't asked about. They weren't asked about how tall the people are and are, should we be afraid of them? They said, do they have fortress cities or not? Fine. They were not sent on a spy mission. They were sent on a scouting mission. On a, not reconnaissance for military, but rather to reconnoiter the area for settlement. That's it. That's why there's no military men in here, except Yoshua. And Yoshua here is defined as Hoshea Binun. Okay. He's not coming as a military man. He's coming as a representative of Friday. The mission is working fine. They come back and give their beautiful report and they bring the fruit. By the way, parenthetically, why did they bring that fruit? So what, what are our choices if they're going to bring fruit from Israel? Jaffa oranges, not yet. What are they going to, what are they going to bring to show the people in the desert? We have seven choices. What are they? Seven fruits from. Don't you say it? What? Yeah, I mean, I, the seven fruits listed in. Well, in uh, yeah. Israel is praised, and therefore we think they bring chitas, gefen, tenavrimon, shemen, and dvash. Okay, so why don't they? Well, first of all, chitan, se'orah, it's too late in the season. They've already been harvested. Plus, that's not going to be very exciting. Why not zaytim? Zaytim are one of the three principal crops of Eretz Yisrael. Daganti Rosh Vietzar. Why don't they bring zaytim? The answer is because zaytim aren't ripe yet. Like a student of mine continually reminds me that I taught him, you cannot understand Tanakh if you don't know the world of Tanakh. And to understand anything about agriculture, you got to know the seasons. Olive har harvesting is in November. This is happening in the summer. The olives aren't ripe. There's nothing to bring back. Yeah, don't, don't come see my backyard in, in uh, October, November. It's not, not pleasant. Right, but at the end of November, right? They just, I mean, we don't harvest them. It's too hard. They just fall to the ground. Okay, but that's when, they, that's when they're ripe. Yeah. So, so what's left? We got rid of the two grains and zaytim. What's left? Gefen, Teina, Rimon, and Dvash, which is Tamarim. They only bring three of them. Why don't they bring dates? So you're probably familiar with the phrase that's like bringing coals to Newcastle. Bringing dates to the desert is like bringing a bucket of water to the ocean. That's all there is in the desert is date trees. Oasis has date trees and water. So dates aren't going to excite anybody. So they bring the three things, the grapes, and the figs and the pomegranates and, and the figs and the uh, pomegranates, which they don't have access to, that are very exciting, that are hard, that are right now in the summer, and they bring them so that people can see it. Beautiful. Parenthetically, one other thing about the grapes: Why did it take? This is my my Chavert, Howard Lavoda suggested it a long time ago, and I think I think he really knows what he's saying here, um, and in general. That um, why did they have to have two guys carrying poles with the grapes? Grapes just aren't that heavy. I'll ask you a different question. 
How could they walk around the desert with the grapes? What happens to grapes in the desert? They dry up. They become raisins. So his suggestion is that what they did is they actually took a, the dirt and they brought the whole vine with the dirt under it. And they carried it, which kept it fresh for a while in the desert. And that's why they needed two guys to carry it. All right, just a horror on the side. Not germane to the shear, but just an interesting point. Doesn't All fit right. the uh, icon. What? Doesn't fit the icon. Doesn't fit the icon. It does solve the Orla problem, but that's a different issue. Um, in any case, uh, this is uh, this, but this is the difficulty in this parasha. It's not a spy mission. Now, it's not an inherent difficulty until it goes sour, but the real difficulty is right here. When Moshe Rabbeinu begins to retell the story of the last, very quickly, the last 38 years, at the beginning of Sefer Dvarim, this is right at the beginning. That's the end of what we lay on Monday, Thursday, and uh, uh, during the week before Tisha B'Av, right? Right, so so when we land on Shabbat, we don't like to start there, so we cut a pasuk earlier. We start with Yud Aleph. All right, and now Moshe tells the following story, and he tells two stories in this piece, and both of these stories are told very differently than they're told in the original place. Tell me which story this is. Moshe says, how can I possibly take care of all of your burdens and all of your fighting and litigation? You're so many people. Thank God you're such a big nation, but still, it's a big headache. So what did I say to you? Give me wise, scholarly people from the, your tribes, representatives of the tribes, I'll point them over you. Over you. And you say, I said it's a good idea. So I took these leaders, well-known men and wise men. I'm appointed them over you. Now, where do you know that story from? And whose advice was that? Like Yitro. That's Yitro. And it's not I came up with the idea and I said it to you and you liked it. Rather, Yitro saw me Taking answering everybody's questions, and he said, Lo toba I said, It's not a good thing that you're going to do. You're going to be wear out, and they're going to wear out waiting in line. Here's what you do. And he said, famously, and you appoint judges. Now, Moshe's not trying to take credit for something that's not his, because guess what? When Sefer Dvarim is given to the people, so Sefer Shmo, they know the story. So, what's he trying to do here? So, let's continue and look at his telling. And we're going to see the other part, which directly hits on our, our parsha. I taught, directed your judges, this is what you should do, etc., etc. And that continues. And then in Pasuk Yodet, we move on. All right, so we traveled and we went all the way through. And I said, we're about to come to the land, right? And we're going to come to the land. And look what happens in Pasuk Chafet. Again, the story is different. You guys came up to me. You said, let's send some men. is kind of like Iraglu. Let them spy out the land. Spy out the land, not, not visit. Let's go see the road we're supposed to take and the cities we're going to come to. By the way, that's very different 
then the beginning of Parshat Shlach. Because in the beginning of Parshat Shlach, not only is it Hashem's idea, which he says to tell Moshe to, to choose and send people, it's not the people's idea. Hashem tells him, Latur et they should visit the land. But also the questions that Moshe asked them to answer are about the nature of the land, and is there trees, and is it a fat land, and are the cities fortress? Here the questions are, <clears throat> what road should we take, and what kind of cities are we going to attack? And notice, notice, by the way, the symbiosis. Moshe tells them, give me some judges, and, and, but, and you like the idea. What did you say? And now you came to me and said, let's send some spies. Spies, And I like the idea. So I had a suggestion for you, and you liked it. We did it. You had a suggestion for me, and I liked it. We did it. Oops. Notice that Moshe has to retell the story the way it happened, which is one member of each Shevet, right? And they're Anashim. However, the preface to the story is told differently. It's their idea, and the idea is a spy mission, which, by the way, means that Moshe on the spot is, is admitting, if that's what you asked me to do, I didn't do it right. You don't send Machers on a spy mission. You send somebody who can disappear into the woodwork, right? Exactly. And you don't send people to go visit the whole country and you don't spend them for a long time and they bring back souvenirs. You spend, send a couple people who are incognito, who nobody will notice. They go in, they find the first point of vulnerability, come back and report it. That's it. That's all you need, which is what the people asked for here. What did these 12 people do? They went up to the mountain. Notice. In this story, they went to Nachal Eshkol and they spied it, but by Chubi Adami what was they spying? To bring back fruit. As opposed to spying it out like, is this a route to take for attack? And they came back and they said, it's a beautiful land. However, you guys did not want to go and you were afraid, right? So it all comes from them. By the way, the quote-unquote Miraglim get off the hook in this story. The Maragun come back, it's a beautiful land, and the people freak out in this telling of the story. Now, you scroll down further, and you hear about the whole piece, including the decree, which is why Moshe Rabbeinu, why two things are happening. A, why Moshe is talking to a whole generation that wasn't there, because your parents all died out because of the decree. And second of all, as you'll find out, and it's why I'm not going into the land. Here we go. God got angry at me, too. And he said, you can't come to the land. And by the way, that's an interesting point because we've all grown up. Our mother's milk has been that Moshe Rabbeinu did not go into the land because of Meimariva, because of the stick. Shimuna Amorim. Right? So the Barbanel here gives the following answer. He says, if you look at at, um, at Meimariva, both Moshe and Aaron are punished. And you think about it, it's a huge punishment for what seems to be a relatively light piece. So he says something interesting, but I don't think it works. He says that, that uh, Meimariva was a cover-up. In other words, Moshe Rabbeinu had a more grievous thing, and Aaron certainly had a much more grievous thing that would cause them to be punished, but the Torah didn't want to say it, so put it on Meimariva. This is problematic for two reasons. Reason number one is that the Torah didn't cover it up. Aaron's big sin was the, was the Egel, and that's what the Abarbanel points to. So there's no cover-up. Second of all, if I punish you greatly for something light, I'm suddenly going to 
imagine that that light thing wasn't so light. So it's gen in, it's generating more animus towards Moshe and Aaron that way, not less. But I think there's something else going on. What was the punishment at Memeriva? You may not lead them into the land. I tell Lotaviatan. It doesn't mean Moshe can't go in as a private citizen. It means he can't lead the people. Here, Moshe says, the decree hit me also because I'm also over 20. And I also have to die in the desert. I'm part of that group. There's only two guys who survived it, Yoshua and Kalev. So I'm also nailed by it. But now watch what he says. Yoshua binun ha'me'edofanachat. The first time Yoshua is mentioned in Dvarim. Hu yavoshama. This Yoshua, this one is standing here, He's going to come. What did Hashem say to me? This Yoshua, you better give him strength because he's going to bring it, bring Am Yisrael there. What's going on here? So the only other source we have to look at right now is something that, that just, it, it begs to be seen. It's, it's, it's too obvious. And that is the second chapter of Yoshua. So not only obvious because it's Daftara this week, but it's obvious because the reason it's Daftara is it's Yoshua's spy mission. Yoshua sends spies to Yericho. These are spies. These are not scouts. What are their names? We got no clue. Yes, there's a Midrash, very difficult Midrash about who it is. We got no clue. And Horaya, they're never given names in the text. As a matter of fact, in Paragvav, they're called Ne'arim. It was like really no-name kids. Yoshua sends two Anashim Miraglim Cheresh, silent spies, Miraglim. And they come into the land. They have the whole interaction with Rachav. And Rachab declares her allegiance to God. And then they come back to Yoshua and they say, to the, the whole people are everybody scared, and they all heard about Kriyat Yamsuf, and they all heard about Sichon and Og, and they're all afraid of us. Great. That's the story. Finished. We don't have to look at that Be'iyun. That Perak Be'iyun is a fascinating Perak on its own, not part of our issue. But what, what do we do with Sefer Dvarim? That's my question. So I'm going to make the following suggestion. I'm going to take us off the share because, uh, because we don't need the text for this. <clears throat> what is Sefer Dvarim? Sefer Dvarim, if you think about it, is a book that should never have been written. Correct? It should have been the case that Moshe Rabbeinu leads us out of Mitzrayim, leads us to Har Sinai, we either do or don't have to build the Mishkan, depending on Rashi Ramban, but oh, we'll follow Ramban. We have to build a Mishkan. We build a Mishkan, pick up the Mishkan. We march 11 days later in Israel. Moshe Rabbeinu leads us into Israel. Yeshua is his general. We conquer Israel, settle down, set up the Mishkan, where we're going to set it up, Shiloh. And beautiful history. And there's basically Rashid Shmod Bayikra, part of Bamidbar, and Nodvarim. Dvarim is necessitated because of this chayt that we read about in this week's parasha. And because now there's a whole new generation that needs to hear about Matan Torah, needs to hear the Aserat Hadibrot with Moshe's commentary, if you will, or additions to it, Kashet Sivcha, and everything else, and the expansion of it, the whole new Mamitzvot. Then they have to go through another breed, and they have to have all of that is necessitated because of the new generation. Who is Sefer Dvarim written for? So the answer is Sefer Dvarim is written for all of us. Who is Sefer Dvarim said for? So I'm going to suggest something, and I do not mean it in its fullest sense. Sefer Dvarim was said for everybody. 
But I think that there was one particular target in Sefer Dvarim, target audience, who was more important than everybody else. And that was Yehoshua. Here is Moshe, and by the way, Yoshua, as we see throughout Sefer Yoshua, as much of as a fearless leader as he is, is always obsessed almost with imposter complex. Who am I? Who am I to Moshe Rabbeinu? How could I possibly fit in his shoes? And so it starts here. But Moshe is teaching Yoshua something, including Moshe is teaching Yoshua about his own mistakes. Moshe deliberately sets up the story of the judges. And even though we all know that it was Yitro's advice, and no, he's not keeping it from everybody, he tells it differently because he wants to juxtapose it to the story of the Miraglim. He presents a great idea that the people agreed to, which is to have great, knowledgeable machers, leaders, well-known people, people of name, people of note, one from each tribe, many from each tribe, to be the judicial leaders to be the leaders of the nation. I can't do it alone. You guys are a huge nation. Leaders. That's you move from tribe to nation. You got to have a, a much bigger leadership. Fine. And it works well. And by the way, the first command he gives them is, don't be afraid of anybody. You're a judge. You don't be afraid of anybody. Fine. That works as a judge. Then he tells another story, which is the story of the 12 guys he sent. But he tells the story the way it should have happened, not the way it did happen. He says it should have been a spy mission. If we're going to send anybody, it should have been a spy mission. And as a spy mission, who should it have been? Spy mission. Not like I did with judges. Should have been a couple of guys, quiet, incognito. Come back and tell us what's going on. Instead, I made a mistake. What was my mistake? I sent 12 big guys. Now, if you remember in that, in that passage, at the end of that story, it says, and even I can't go into the land because of that. Who's going to go into the land? Yoshua. Yoshua is standing there listening very carefully to all these words. What is Moshe communicating to Yoshua? Let me tell you what a spy mission should look like. It should look like what I just described. Not like I did. Moshe is saying, my inability to enter the land, the fact that you're going to be the leader to enter the land is all because of this mistake that I made is that I ended up taking 12 of these important guys and sending them on this mission. And even though that's the way HaKadosh Baruch Hu told me, we should have done something to either lower the profile or modify something because what ended up happening blew up in our faces. And the result of that was the biggest tragedy in our history. You have to realize the consequences of the Egel were nothing compared to the consequences of Chetam Maraglin. Consul of the Egel is a few thousand people died. It was terrible. It was held over our heads for a long time. But the Chetem Ragli means there was not one single person, save two, who left Mitzrayim as an adult, who remembered Mitzrayim, who remembered Kriyat Yamsuf as an adult who walked into Israel. Everybody else had to get it from their parents. A powerful thing. So I believe that what Moshe Rabbeinu was doing here in Sefer Dvarim is he is, shall we say, atoning for the errant agency of Parshat Shlach and instructing Yehoshua how to do it properly. 
I'm not going to the land. And this is why he says, I'm not going to the land because Hashem got angry with me because of this story, because of this event. Therefore, Yoshua, I'm letting you know how it should go. Don't treat them like judges. Don't treat them like big important people. This should be something that's done in Kanu. And Yoshua learns his lesson very well. And he sends two very quiet people into Yericho. And the rest, of course, is, uh, is history. 